Hello and welcome to Cabana Chats, a podcast about writing and community, brought to you by The Resort, where our motto is find your happy place and create. I'm your host and founder of The Resort, Catherine Lasota. The Resort is an international community of writers based in Queens, New York City. We support writers of all genres and experience levels. If you are a writer who's looking for classes, online meetups, accountability support, and more with wonderful colleagues who love to share resources and champion one another, I'd love for you to join us online. You can find out more about all that The Resort has to offer by visiting theresortlic.com. Y'all, this is our first episode of season two of Cabana Chats. Thank you to everyone who spent time with us in season one and a big welcome to all of our new friends. For this first episode of season two, I'm so thrilled to bring you a conversation with Halima Marcus. If you work as an editor and you're also a writer, it can be possible to kind of delay the craving to write for longer because you're scratching that itch in other ways. Whereas, you know, if I had a job that was completely unrelated, I imagine I would, wouldn't be able to go as long without writing. I would feel that urge sooner. Halima Marcus is the executive director of Electric Literature and the editor of its weekly fiction magazine, Recommended Reading. She is also the editor of the wonderful anthology Horse Girls, which was published by Harper Perennial in 2021. Halima's short stories have appeared in Indiana Review, Gulf Coast, One Story, Bomb, The Literary Review, and The Southampton Review. Halima has an MFA from Brooklyn College, and she lives in the Catskill region of New York. Halima and I chat about city life and country life and about leaning on your community when working on a new project. We also talk about how to maintain connection with others when most of the work you do together is online. This was a fun chat. Let's dive on in. I'm very happy to be here today with Halima Marcus on the Cabana Chats podcast, and I want to say welcome to you, Halima, and we're going to kick off, as we always do, with our episodes by asking you to say hello to our audience and introduce yourself, if you would, um, outside of your writing life, outside of the world of publishing. Who is Halima Marcus? Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me on. Who am I outside of the world of publishing and writing is somewhat of a tricky question, but I will try to answer it. Um, I live in upstate New York, a recent transplant out of the city. Um, I'm in my mid-30s. I um, am a runner and currently training for my first half marathon since the pandemic. Um, so that's so getting back up with that. And... My other interests include hiking and being um, outdoors as much as possible. So you did an excellent job of introducing yourself. <laughs> and that's exciting that you're training for your first half marathon outside the, uh, or after the pandemic. There is no after the pandemic. What does that mean? Since, since before the pandemic is what you said. Since before, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it's important to get a little bit of a sense of of who we're talking to because it often informs our ideas of community. And even 
the um like the things you mentioned with hiking and and running and you said you are a recent transplant upstate have these activities for you increased more since you've gotten out of the city are they new or are they things that you always did and and has the opportunities changed for it it certainly changed i didn't anticipate when i left the city that how much more difficult running outside the city is because there's streetlights everywhere and there's people everywhere. And I would go running at all times of day. I would go after work at night in the winter. And so I've had to change that a lot. And I'm, you know, running on mixed terrain and things aren't as plowed or shoveled. So that's changed a lot. Um, but feeling connected to nature is definitely easier here. Just being like aware of wildlife right outside the window kind of thing. Um, when I lived in the city, Prospect Park was like the most important place to me in the world. So you have a nice shot of that in the city, but, you know, outside the city is kind of more encompassing. That's awesome. Like Prospect Park is the most important place. And then you move to this place that is Prospect Park exploded and everywhere <laughs> around you. That's lovely. Yeah. I used to play a game like what if you could live in one house in the city what one piece of property what would you pick and there's like a weird garden shed in prospect park and i was like i would live there like a character in a children's book see this tells us a lot like a like a character in a children's book and bringing it back to books here we go no i love it um so you you mentioned that when you were in the city and just with running even there are more people around and activity and and you now live upstate, um, and you work in the world of publishing. You work at Electric Literature, um, which really is a community, I think, a community-building literature organization. Tell me if I'm wrong. Am I right about that? Do you view it that way as one as an organization that builds community? Absolutely. It's something that we really try to do intentionally with the work that we publish and how we present ourselves online and how we engage with people online and, and in person. One thing that we're always negotiating is that we have like a national and international readership. So how do we create actual relationships in localities and also online? Um, and one thing that I've been missing a bit is I, th I think, you know, even though it was like a bubble a little bit like the New York publishing world, I had more face to face interaction with at least one part of our community. And now I'm kind of renegotiating what that looks like and how to find that. And um, we're remote permanently now. And so our staff is a few people still in New York City, but um, people all over the country and events like AWP, I think, are becoming more important for, as kind of like a staff retreat as well as like a face-to-face -face time with readers and community. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. AWP, for anyone who's unfamiliar, the Association of Writers and Writing Programs, I think I had that correct, the yearly conference of anyone involved in writing, really, um, coming together in different parts of the country, which is going to be in a place that's special to you this year, but we may come back to that. Um, yeah, well, electric literature has always had people working in a remote capacity to some extent, right? And now everybody's remote. Have you seen 
that change um, the way that you approach how you reach audiences or how you think about audiences now that absolutely everyone on staff is a remote worker? I think one benefit of it is being less New York City centric. I think that you can, if you work in publishing and you live in the city, you can feel like that's what the literary world is, which is absolutely not true. And anyone who's listening from outside of New York will probably be rolling their eyes and be like, duh, we knew this all along. <laughs> but you do get kind of mired in that in like a certain scene and having just a wider view is really important. And also thinking about like we're not serving the publishing industry as a publication. We're serving readers and we're serving writers. And that's a really different thing than the publishing industry. And so it's a good reminder of that as as well. So you're serving readers and you're serving writers. And you are not only the executive director of Electric Literature, but you're also a writer yourself. And I wonder if you could speak a bit to how your role at Electric Literature intersects or doesn't with your writing life. You recently had a fantastic anthology published, and I would love you to talk about that a bit as well. The intersection between my work life and my writing life is, I mean, they're constantly intersecting, but it's also a constant negotiation. I mean, it's the same world. It's using the same brain in a lot of respects, particularly as an editor, because I'm the executive director of Electric Literature, which is largely an administrative and managerial position, but I am also the fiction editor at Electric Literature. And that's something I've kept because that's where my passion lies more than fundraising and grant applications. You know, that's that's where you get kind of the energy what? from. Melina, no way. <laughs> Crazy, I know. I know. And then you add writing into the mix. And one thing that is interesting is, you know, I think if you work in as an editor and you're also a writer, it can be possible to kind of delay the craving to write for longer because you're scratching that itch in other ways. Whereas, you know, if I had a job that was completely unrelated, I imagine I would wouldn't be able to go as long without writing. I would feel that urge sooner. Mm-hmm. Um And I think being an editor sharpens my writing and just kind of allows me to identify problems and patterns a little bit more quickly. But one thing I've been thinking a lot about lately is how actually working in publishing and just being aware of like the mechanisms of publishing and a lot of the inside um, like capitalistic machinery is damaging to the writer's psyche and it's hard to separate them. I think that's true for all writers, whether or not um, you work in publishing, you have to, in some regard, not think about, is this book going to sell? Am I going to, who's going to buy it? Who's going to like it? You kind of have to separate the end product from the process. Um, But when you work on the end product, I think that can get more challenging. Mm. Can you say more about that? That um, because I hear you with we live inside capitalism, and and there are certain things that our brain is told make something important or not, or does it sell or not? Is that something that you find affecting maybe you personally as a writer in the the generative process to even create new writing? Is it in the 
editing process uh, with writing? Is it the whole thing? Is it what you choose to write about? I think the challenge I'm experiencing right now is is finding it difficult to live in the moment of writing where you so, look, writing is so much a, an art that has to unfold in the moment. You can't necessarily go in with an intention and then execute that intention and come out the other side. You have to kind of like sit there and muck about and be uncomfortable. And my problem is like, I'll be like, well, if I write this story, how would it fit into a collection? And, mm. you know, like not be and just and play the steps forward, kind of like a domino effect rather than just being like, you know what? It doesn't matter. Just sit here, just write it, figure it out. Don't think about what will happen next. So that's the that's the challenge I'm currently trying to tackle. Right. Yeah, that reminds me of something that I, I may have brought this up on the podcast before, but uh, Shelly Oria did a session for our fellows at the resort last year where she was doing some coaching on writing and she was talking about the difference between process and product thinking. And when you sit down at the page, you really need to be like all process. And it's so easy to slip into product and trick yourself that it's not product thinking. Like even, mm. even who are my readers for this is a really tricky line. Like that's product thinking. Yes, I really like that language for what I'm talking about. That kind of sums it up really well. Thank you, Shelley. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Shelley. Um, so, but you, so you say, you know, you work, your work, in your work as an editor, it can kind of scratch that writing itch, and I hear you on that. Um, and yet, you managed to get out this wonderful book in the past year during the pandemic. Um, that of, of a collection that you put together. Could you talk a bit about that and maybe how you managed to, I don't know, prioritize that at a certain time or get that done in, in the midst of all the other writing-related activity that you were doing? So Horse Girls came out, Horse Girls, my anthology, which I edited, came out in August 2021, which meant that I was doing the bulk of the work on it in the summer of 2020. So it was kind of right after we'd gone into lockdown, we were negotiating that first summer. In that regard, it actually worked out well for me because any other distraction I had was gone and I was doing it in addition to having my full-time job, but I was really able to just, you know, work on the weekends or work in the in the evenings and not be running off to readings or dinners or whatever it was I used to do right. before the pandemic. So that, that worked out well. I did find that editing an anthology required marshalling all of my talents that I had amassed o over 10 years of working at Electric Literature. It's, it's a quite daunting administrative task, juggling 14 contributors and all the drafts and all the edits, um, and then coordinating with the publisher, and, and there's contracts, and I felt that I really relied on like a range of skill sets that I had developed and I was grateful to have. Um, but everyone says editing and anthology is very challenging, and you're like, yeah, sure, but also they're right. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I know it from the inside now. <laughs> but it was, I really enjoyed doing it. And it was a slightly different editorial muscle because I primarily have edited fiction and these were essays. Mm -hmm. And I just got to work with some incredible writers, some of whom I'd work with through fiction. 
previously, others I'd never worked with before, and it was it was an, I was really able to f- focus in and get it done in a way that I think would have actually been very difficult had my life continued on the way it had been pre-March 2020. Right. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I I don't know about you, but I think of an anthology as kind of a community in book form talking around uh, a similar theme or topics um, in different from different angles and different ways. So that is kind of like publishing a, a form of community. But you also mentioned that it was probably more um, or less less difficult to, to work on it when you had less social commitments. And we also think of our social commitments and meeting people in person as community. So I wonder, because it's so challenging to put an anthology together with because of all these different skill sets that you need to bring together, were there any moments where you found yourself leaning on community in any way to help you in the process of putting this together? And could you speak to any example of that? Absolutely. When I was just going out with the proposal and and just starting out once it sold to Harper Perennial, I asked a lot of questions of Jennifer Baker, who edited an anthology, Everyday People, and who I worked with at Electric Literature. I reached out to Michelle Philgate, who edited an anthology, What My Mother and I Don't Talk About. Um, Joe Fassler, who had published in Recommended Reading, who edited... Um, anthology called A Light in the Dark, which is um, writing advice come through interviews um, that had been, I think, in the Atlantic. So I really had to get help um, from, it it was surprising that there just wasn't more information about anthologies available. And I also felt like my publisher didn't really know how to publish an anthology. (laughs) And so I just had to get or my like my agency hadn't really done one. So all these people you kind of think are supposed to know about it are like, hmm, well, you're the editor, you figured out. And so <laughs> I was fortunate to be able to reach out to those people and they're so generous. And since then I've tried to pay it forward. And we did a electric literature salon on editing an anthology with Taja Eisen um, and Sari Botten. Um, and that was, you know, an effort just to make someone's thinking, oh, like I can, it's now a problem. You can Google and maybe get some help. Um, And, you know, different people have approached me to ask for advice as well. And I try to say yes to those requests. Totally. I mean, there's a, there's a difference between Googling for information and actually getting to talk to another human who's been through it, because it's not just, I think, right, the collection of information to know how to do it but the commiseration of oh you've been through this too right you can Mm -hmm. we can talk about that together yes and hopefully you know in that salon environment and jen baker was the other person in that conversation who i already mentioned that those people are commiserating and you know you get like a range of experience and so it's not yeah not like reading a dry article Right. You mentioned a few people, actually, uh, Jennifer Baker, Michelle Philgate, and Sari Button have all been guests on this podcast. So if you're listening and you haven't heard those, do check them out for a little These People Put Together Anthologies sampler platter of yes. podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So then the, the book is made, it's published, and then you were 
promoting it during a pandemic. And I can't help but think you must have leaned on your community in different kinds of ways during that process as well. Would you speak to any part of that situation for us? I absolutely had to reach out to people that I've worked with over the years, particularly when it came to um, placing excerpts. That was very important um, editorial relationships that I've built over time. And, you know, thinking about also the communities that the writers themselves are a part of, um, because it is such a array of voices and each person, there's a lot of overlap and a lot of difference, which is hopefully one of the strengths of the book. Um, I mean, the, in some regards, the anthology horse girls is for a very specific subset of people. I mean, I wanted to make it appealing to anyone who had never ridden horses and who might've been interested in it for other reasons, like the, the themes of gender and power and um, ambition and, you know, being really connected to something when you're young and then negotiating how to keep it in your life as an adult. I think those are somewhat universal themes, but, you know, realistically, the some person who's going to pick it up at the bookstore when they see it on the shelf is someone who has something in their past that pulls them to the, the title horse girls and the cover and like some That's a great kind cover of, by the way yeah thank sorry. you yeah, and it. some kind of unfinished business negotiating the stereotype of the girl and the horse and what what it means and so it was also interesting to try to reconnect with that community which is in many ways, very much outside of the literary community with some overlap, but primarily people living outside of cities, not necessarily reading the same literary, not reading electric literature, for example, or literary magazines. And um, that it was definitely challenging to get to those people, I think, during a pandemic, because that's very much like in-person kind of sit you know you're at the barn you're at the horse show um not necessarily like on twitter right right you did you were able to do a bit of that as i recall um the in-person stuff here and there Mm -hmm. i was able to do a great event sarah maslin near another writer she had a book called horse crazy and she is on the board for gallup nyc which is a great nonprofit that gives horseback riding lessons to um, kids local to their barn um, in Jamaica Plains and then also to kids with like developmental problems and as a, as a form of um, just therapy and fun. So we did an event there, which was, which was really great um, at, at their, at their barn. That sounds awesome. Um, that's great. I wonder I just as we're we're getting closer to the end of our time here, and I feel like you might have some special wisdom to share in terms of how like the the culture of electric literature and working with um, people who are across the country in different ways, and how you maintain I don't know if community is the word that you would use, but this sense of of a team together working together, if you have any thoughts on how that's cultivated 
in electric liter- literature in particular because I know people are coming and listening to this and working in different industries and trying to figure out how do I remain connected with the people I care about working with? I've, I've tried to make deliberate space for us to, our staff to kind of shoot the shit, not about work. Um, so when we have staff meetings, I often have like 10 minutes tops of business and then we go around and we say what we're reading and and watching, which is just really fun to think about. You know, we all we're all working on literary projects, supporting books, editing essays and poetry and fiction, but you know, we all also read for fun and for pleasure. And we also all watch a fair amount of TV and movies. And and I think that's been a nice low pressure way for people to engage in kind of just like a friendly social way, you know, we're not asking you to be like, tell me one interesting thing you did this weekend. And someone's like, I sat on my ass. <laughs> what did you do last summer? Write a report. Yeah, exactly. Like school reports. So we do those go arounds. Um, we keep Slack channels that are like for non work specific things. Try, you know, try to do more video calls and, you know, it's it's imperfect, but I do think the people that were remote previously are more included now, and, and that's absolutely a, a silver lining. Oh, yeah, that's that's key to think about. And just to think about the accessibility of, you know, who can be in a space together um, has been something that I'm taking forward with me <laughs> into into the coming years, right? Yes, like um, we started doing these virtual salons, um, in lieu of our in-person fundraiser, which was in Brooklyn and was a party that had 300 people. And now our salons are reaching 5,000 people and, um, you know, per season and they're all over the place. And it's, it's not a replacement, but it, it is a welcome addition, I would say. I love that. That's great. It's, it's always interesting to hear the numbers too. It's like really put some concrete, like, oh, yeah, you are reaching that many more people in that context. 300 to 5,000 is quite a jump. And yes, and they're seeing our faces and a little bit of our personalities, and it's more intimate in some ways. That's cool. Yes. Well, Halima, as we, as we wrap up here on this episode, I wonder if you could share with us um, what you're doing for yourself to build community around you, what practices maybe you have for um, continuing support in this really wild times that we're always constantly living in. Some people I know uh, have writing groups or accountability partners or just regular meetups around a fire or, you know, what kinds of things you're doing for yourself to keep this connection with other people in your life and your writing life. It's definitely something I'm working to reestablish since the move. There's actually a wonderful little literary community here in Kingston, although we don't have any kind of formalized meetup as of yet. And I've previously had a writing group that has kind of, it kind of ebbs and flows and we're in, an, I guess, an ebb right now. So I am looking to maybe have a little bit more intentionality around meetups or discussion since they are coming to me a little bit piecemeal with phone calls with 
a friend who lives in another state or, um, I mean, I get a lot of it through electric literature, to be honest. So it's something that's a little bit on my to-do list at the current moment. Well, it sounds like you have some good tools in your tool belt to get that going. Um, And I really appreciate you sharing everything that you did share with us today. Halima, thank you so much for being on Cabana Chats. This was so fun. Thank you for inviting me. And that, dear friends, brings us to the end of episode one of season two of Cabana Chats. If you enjoyed that episode, please consider rating and reviewing Cabana Chats wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. We will be bringing you a new conversation every Tuesday. If you're a writer, I would love to see you in our free online community. Find out more about that and everything the resort has to offer at theresortlic.com. And you can check out the show notes for this episode to find out more about Halima Marcus. Our podcast editor is Jade Isiri Ramos, and our resort assistant is Nadine Santoro. Our music is by Pat Irwin. I'm your host, Catherine Lasoda, and I'll see you next time in the cabana. <laughs>